Church family, I have long since I was a child loved and been fascinated by space. Uh, as a kid, uh, watching uh, the movie Apollo 13 and seeing p uh, us putting men on the moon, it just blew, blew my mind. And in that movie, Apollo 13, there is a real poignant scene as the three astronauts circle the dark side of the moon. They lose radio contact here with, on Earth, and as they circle the back side of the moon and in awe and wonder, seeing, realize, seeing things that, that only 18 men in the history of the world have ever seen. We'll make it 19 because Jesus is fully man, and I know he's seen it, but you catch my drift. And, and, and as they're coming, coming around, two of the astronauts, are, they see their landing site where they should have been landing, and they're taking pictures, and they're, they're all excited and, and, and in wonder. And, and Jim Lovell, the commander, has this moment where he looks at them, and he says, gentlemen, what are your intentions? And they both stop, and they look up, and then Jim says, because I'd like to go home. And his purpose in asking the question was not to, not to, to, to squelch their excitement at what they were seeing, but the reality of their circumstance was there was no opportunity for them to land on the moon. They were in a broken vessel, and there was a lot of things ahead of them they were going to have to be prepared for in order to get home and so Jim's question was, what is our aim? What is our purpose? What are we doing right now? What are we being driven by? And church family, as we come back to Philippians 3 today, I'd ask us both collectively as a church family, individually as followers of Christ, what are our intentions? What's our aim? What's our purpose? What is, what is, what is it we are shooting for and striving for as children of God? So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and, and open up back with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be back in the same passage we were in last week, verses 1 through 11. And I'll remind you that as we looked through it last week, what Paul does is he, is he moves into this, this portion of, of, of the book of Philippians, and he says, now let's get to the matter at hand. And, and he warns them. He says, I want you to beware, church family. I want you to beware those people who would, who would make a push and call for you to, to live by a works-based righteousness, who would, who would say that either in order to be saved, you need to have Jesus plus something else, or now that you're saved, you need to have Jesus plus these works, plus this style, plus this way, plus, 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 and all of a sudden, that, that place of preeminence in the heart of a believer that is due to Christ and Christ alone, you and I, for the sake of a righteousness based on our flesh, we now are sitting in that place of preeminence. Now we boast not in what, who Christ is and what Christ has done, but we boast in who we are and what we have done. And he says, I want you to be aware because the danger is real. Because we can easily all of a sudden begin as followers of Christ to relate to God, not on the basis of the right standing, the righteousness we have from Christ through faith, but even though the only reason we are seated at the table of God is because we are in Christ, we can all of a sudden start to to think that our place at the table is due to our own ability to hold ourselves up, our own ability to achieve, and, 
It's not. And so Paul says, if I want you to be aware because this is a danger. And if anyone wants to go there, I've got a better record than they do. And he names off all these things that were once gains, all these things that were propelling Paul to a life of influence and power in the Jewish religion, in the Jewish political spectrum, in the Jewish nation. All these things that were once gained to me, look at verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, whatever these things were advantage to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I have, through the reckoning and leading of my thoughts, I now have viewed those things as a loss, a singular loss. Whatever individual gains they were to me, they all add up to a loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of relationship with Christ, for the sake of Christ's purpose, for the sake of Christ's will. Not only that, even, even more so than that, I count all things to be lost, to be a disadvantage in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of these things are loss. Everything I could possibly have was lost. And yes, it's all right to chuckle. I'm glad that my daughter is amening uh, what we're reading in Scripture. So hopefully that will continue on and the Lord takes us all home there. Count everything is loss. All things in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, when I compare anything, anything, anything I could gain, anything that I could put confidence in, anything that I could have as a result of my flesh, when I look at it all and I compare it to knowing Jesus, and by knowing Jesus, he, he means a personal, an intimate, a, a, a relationship not knowing about Christ, not knowing things of Christ, not knowing things Christ gives, but, but knowing him truly and rightly and personally and deeply. When I compare all things in view of that relationship, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing, the overwhelming greatness of knowing Christ for whom I have suffered the loss. He says, I don't just count these things as lost. I've already suffered. These things have been forcefully forfeited in my life. And understand for Paul, not only these things he mentions in the text that are, that are still true of him, but likely there were, for, there were forfeitures. There's a lot of thought out there that Paul would have been married as a Pharisee, but it's possible his life would have abandoned him, his family would have disowned him, his place in, in Jewish society, the Jews went from revering him to seeking to assault him at everywhere he went. I mean, realize that Paul had a group of, of Jews who hated what he taught so much they would follow him from city to city and seek to undo and inflict harm. He says, I have forfeited all things, and I am counting them but rubbish. And that was that word we looked at last week. It means table scraps. It's, it's refuse. It's... it's, a, it's things that are inappropriate to discuss at the dinner table. It's filth, it's vomit, it's animal dung. I, I don't just count things as lost, but I count them as, as absolutely terrible so that I may gain Christ. 
and that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, which is through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is what we saw last week. Here's the reality for Paul. Jesus changes everything. Jesus alters everything. Once Paul was walking in this direction and by the power and ability of his flesh had these achievements, these statuses, these prizes, and when Jesus confronts him on the road of Damascus, everything changes. Everything changes. He no longer hungers for his own righteousness, but he hungers for that righteousness, that right standing, that that right relationship with God, which can only come into a person's life because of who Jesus is and what he's done, in light of which God gives this righteousness, and it's received through faith. But that righteousness is not just something for the beginning of our Christian life, but it is the righteousness in which we are to hunger and stand in and appropriate by faith every single moment of our Christian life. Appropriate meaning that which we already have, we take and put to use. See, Jesus changes everything, so we must hunger for his righteousness, hunger for the righteousness of God. And we saw how, we, how to do that last week when we, we see we are to rejoice in the Lord and boast in the Lord and worship by the Spirit and, and not put confidence in the flesh. All of these describe what it looks like to hunger for the righteousness of God. But, but not only do we hunger for the righteousness of God because Jesus changes everything, but we count all things as loss. Anything, church family, that you and I can can put confidence in by our flesh. Anything that would take you and I to a place of relating to God on the basis of our good works, anything that would would cause us to, to yearn and desire for that work, that status, that achievement more than Christ, all of these things you and I are to actively count as loss, to reckon in our minds, no matter how satisfying they look, no matter what status even inside of the church they could bring, we are to actively count them as loss, as rubbish. In view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Amen. Reminds us of the words of the martyr Gemelli, and he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In church family, we should willingly count these things up. We should willingly look at and identify where in our life do we relate to God on the basis of our own righteousness, and wherever it is, we give it up. Now, hear me clearly. What I'm not saying when I say we give up, I'm not saying we don't do good works, but we don't do good works to become righteous. We are righteous, therefore, we're able to do good works. That's the key. But where's it all going? Why is it the key? Why? Jesus changes everything. We hunger for his righteousness. We count all things as lost. Why? Look down with me at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Paul says, Jesus has changed everything. All these things I once, I once built my life on, they're all lost. They're all rubbish. They're all nothing. They're nothing in view of, of gaining Christ, of knowing Christ, of being found in the righteousness that is in Christ because it is only in living out that righteousness that I can know him, that I can know him. What comes to mind, church family, when you think of knowing him? Facts? I know, I, you know, I know 120 Bible trivia answers about Jesus. Is that what comes to mind when we think of knowing him? Do you think of knowing him? Do you think of, well, I know Christ, therefore there should be a lack of conflict in my life? Does what come to mind, I know Christ, therefore what it means to know Christ is to, to feel positively about life or to feel positively about him or to have positive vibes? So what comes to mind when we think about knowing Christ some form of religiosity where there's a lot of different do's and don'ts and do's and don'ts, and that's what it means to know Christ because if any of those are the things that come to mind when you hear the text say, know Christ, all of those things are false. What does it mean to know Christ? That word is to know someone personally through experience. It's a personal relationship between the knower and known it's one who is loved and in return gives love. It speaks of personal, intimate. Describes a relationship which demands a response from the whole of our person. It's not just knowing intellectually with the mind, it's, but it's changed attitude. It's submission of thoughts. It's understanding and experiencing it doesn't come through simply achieving and knowing all sorts of theological facts, but from both responding to Christ in salvation through faith and then once saved, walking with Christ by that same faith. Confident assurance resting the full weight of our being on that which is unknown but true. It seeks submission of every thought to Lord, it is, a, it is Paul's single-hearted desire. Do you see this, church family? What he says is he says, look, I have achieved, I have had status, I have watched, and here is ultimately what drives. Here is my intention. My intention is to know him. It harkens back to Jeremiah 9, 23, where, where the Lord commands, may the wise man not boast in his wisdom, the mighty man may not boast in his might, the, the rich man in his riches, but may he who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord and he understands his ways. See, this is the definition of eternal life. Jesus in John 17 is praying, Lord, that they may have eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they know you and the one whom you have sent. Eternal life is not something for you and I, church family, that we wait to have. We wait for the fullness of it, but if you and I know Christ today, we possess eternal life. And this is the single-hearted focus of Paul. So, sir, church family, knowing Christ has to be the aim of our lives. Not a part of our lives, but the aim of our lives. And I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to say here. I've written it out in giant caps in my notes. Listen very carefully. The goal of knowing Christ is not obeying rules. The goal of knowing Christ is not having a grade of ministry. The goal of knowing Christ is not to change the world. The goal of life is to know him, to love him, to be known and loved by him. 
And yes, if we know him and love him, then absolutely, right? He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So we're not trying to be wishy-washy and say, it's oh, it's just this real feel-good. I have all about relationship. It's not what we mean. But we do mean it is about knowing him. Knowing him. A.W. Tozer said this, we've almost forgotten that God is a person. And as such, a relationship can be cultivated. But full knowledge cannot be achieved in one encounter but only after loving and long time spent together. For God is a person in the deep of his mighty nature. He thinks, he wills, he enjoys, he feels, he loves, he desires, he grieves as any other person may. He communicates with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills and emotions, and this continues the unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man. This this relationship is what he describes as the throbbing heart of the New Testament. It's to know him. Now understand, if you and I, the aim of our life is to know him, we have to know him on his terms based on how he reveals himself. What I mean by that is this. Don't walk away today and say, okay, it's all about knowing him. It's all about knowing him. And so you, ex- you, 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 shoot, you, you shoot a prayer to God and expect a response back from your best friend in a text. Like, that's not how, God doesn't communicate through a text message. Remember one time in second grade, they said, how do you, what's God's phone number? And I said, I don't know, 1-800-CALL-GOD. And, okay, God, you, can, you and I cannot take how you and I relate as human beings and therefore expect God to relate in the same way. But I got wonderful news. You want to know how God relates? Guess what? He spells it all out for us in his word. Amen. Which is why we can know him Truly. And see, it's this, it's this, this hunger, this desire, this, this single-minded focus to know him. This is the defining mark of great spirituality, church family. Or put this way, what makes the great men and women of faith great? The stories of the men and women who have, who have gone and, and risked it all for the sake of Christ, who have, who have lived faithfully in, in trying times, in mundane times, the, the names that we know and the many that we don't, what defines greatness spiritually? It's not what family, were you born into a great spiritual family? It's not what's the size and scope of your ministry. It's not how dramatic is your testimony and how many burning bush moments have you experienced. What defines greatness spiritually is the burning hunger to know Christ. Think of Moses. We know Moses for the great miracles he, and in the way that he led, and But what is Moses' singular desire? Lord, if I have found any favor in your sight, show me your glory. David, the king, the one who finally brings Israel all together, and and what is David's longing? Not, Lord, give me more. It's as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul yearns for you, God. Even Christ, as he prays for the disciples, that they may know you, the only true God. Paul, what is his desire? Understand, Paul's desire isn't to have a massive ministry that expands the scope of everything. The reason Paul is driven, the reason the gospel drives Paul, the reason Paul, it walks in humility, the reason for all of that is because there is a deep longing and hunger to know Christ. Greatness spiritually is bound up in knowing Jesus. It's the desire and the hunger to know him. But what does it look like to actually know him? 
as we seek to know him, what's it going to look like in our lives? So look back with me at the passage. It spells it out for us. That I may know him, that is the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. They're not two separate things, but in, in the Greek language, they're actually connected by the same article, meaning they're, they're not one or the other or sometimes one then the other. They're both. They're both present. To know him means knowing the power of his resurrection. That word power is the word means the power to actually do something, to accomplish something. And the emphasis there is not on resurrection, but power. There is the power. What is the power of the resurrection? The very power of the Almighty God, which called forth Jesus out of the grave. The very power that with ease overcame the single greatest power in our universe. Why do I say death is the single greatest power in our universe? Because there's not a human being, there's not a star, there's not an animal, there's not a plant who doesn't die. The universe is dying. But the power of the resurrection with ease defeated the most powerful force in this universe. The power of the resurrection. What does it mean to know Christ? It means to know the power of his resurrection. This is the power that God gives to you and I to actually fulfill ministry. Acts 1.8, Jesus is charging the disciples to go into all the world. You be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He calls them to go. And what does he say right before that? He says, when the Spirit comes and dwells within you, you will receive power. When Paul is charging Timothy and he says, Timothy, do not be afraid. You have, been, you have been given spiritual gifts and don't hide them away. But even though as you use them, it may bring you into suffering, fan them into flame. And what, is his, what does he say to encourage Timothy there in, in 2 Timothy 1? For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power. Of power. The power of the resurrection that enables us by the strength of the Spirit within us to actually engage and do ministry and, 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 and fulfill what God has called us to. It's the power of God that enables us to faithfully follow Him, to stand courageously in the midst of hardship, to resist sin and temptation. Over in Philippians, Paul, describing this power in a prayer, says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing passing greatness of his power toward those of us who believe. This is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The same power that pulled Jesus out of the grave, that exalted and set him on high, is the same power of God toward you and I as followers of Christ. Peter would put it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to you and I everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Here's what he says there. If you really do in fact know Christ, if you have been saved by grace through faith, then God's power is such 
that you and I lack absolutely nothing, no matter how hard the world, no matter how great the suffering, no matter how much the temptation, no matter what the status is, no matter how much we achieve, there is the power coursing through us because of the Spirit of God living within us that we are actually able to follow Him completely. What does it mean to know Him? It means to know His resurrection power, that power which Paul says is perfected in what? In our weaknesses. You see, it's that power of the resurrection that enables us to maintain hope and walk through and enjoy the fellowship of the sufferings. Does that catch you? Look what Paul, Paul says, I want to know him. And knowing him means knowing the power of his resurrection. And we're all like, whoop, yes, amen, power of the resurrection. But Paul's saying the same thing, whoop, yes, amen, fellowship of his sufferings. Fellowship, shared participation from his sufferings. What are Christ's sufferings? We're not referring to Christ's death on the cross. That would be with other words. Christ's sufferings are those afflictions that all believers go through this side of heaven. Could be physical, imprisonment, floggings, beatings, hardships. We also see that it's mental anguish, it's trials, it's temptations. That if you and I are in Christ, there is no way for you and I to escape. For Paul, it's a joy. Why is it a joy to experience his sufferings? Because there is a fellowship. Why is it a gift of grace? Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that, that God would graciously give us the opportunity to suffer for his sake. Because in Christ, as a Christian, you and I never suffer for Christ. He suffered for us. We don't ever suffer for him. We suffer with him. I'm going to put it this way. Jesus suffers with his people. The identification and the bond when you are in Christ is so strong that when you and I as followers of Christ are assaulted by a hostile world, it is Jesus suffering with us, which is why when Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, what did he say? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my sheep? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There is a fellowship, an intimacy, a richness of knowing Christ that is only found in sharing in his sufferings. And Paul wants it. And why does Paul want it? Well, church family, he wants it because this is exactly what Jesus said we would have if we really know him. Jesus says in John 15, if you are hated by the world, know that first it's because the world hated me. He says in Matthew 10, it's enough for the slave to be like the master, the student like the teacher. If they've maligned the head of the household, how much more those who follow him? He puts it point blank in Luke 9, 23, when he says, if any man would come after me, what must he do? He must take up his cross, that instrument of torture and shame, and follow me. Why is this what Paul desires? Because this is the reality of what it means to follow Christ this side of heaven. All who desire to live a godly life will, in Christ will, will be persecuted. Now understand, church family, Paul's not desiring this because somehow suffering is a wonderful good. Paul doesn't want suffering for suffering's sake. That would be absolute foolishness. You and I should not seek after suffering to suffer. No, what drives us is knowing Christ. But understand, if we are truly going to know Christ, then we are going to experience the fellowship of his sufferings. 
We are going to suffer in some way, shape, form, or fashion as we follow Christ, some more than others, some at different times than others, but you and I will face hardship, suffering, and trial. But the emphasis here is not on suffering, it's on fellowship. As you and I suffer, what do we experience? Well, in in 2 Corinthians 1, it says, just as you and I share the sufferings of Christ, it's in sharing the sufferings of Christ that we share the comfort of Christ. You want to know the deep, all-surpassing peace and comfort of God? Experience the fellowship of his sufferings. In fact, perhaps maybe our aversion to suffering in our, in our world and, and in our present state, our aversion to suffering and our resistance to avoid it at all costs, perhaps there are times we have missed knowing the all-surpassing peace and comfort of God because we've tried to wiggle out from the fellowship of his sufferings. Not just the the fellowship of the suffering comes with the comfort of Christ, but Romans 5 says that as we suffer, it it leads to the love of God being poured out in our life. You want to know his love deeper? Know the fellowship of his sufferings. With the fellowship of Christ comes the assurance that we'll never be separated. Romans 8, and not only Romans 8, but the sufferings of this present time do not compare to the glory that is to come. Why do we want to know the fellowship of his sufferings? Not because of the sufferings, but because of the fellowship because of, because of what is known there. Knowing him means knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And as we know both of those things, there's a third thing taking place over and in both of them. We are being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death. That word conformed. It's a present passive verb, meaning you and I don't conform ourselves. God is the one actively working, doing the conforming. But it's also present, meaning that there is never a moment as a child of God where God is not actively taking all things and working them together for his good, which is conforming you and I to be like Christ. This word is the only time it's used in the whole Greek New Testament. It's a word that means to be transformed in essence to the experience and the form of someone else. What is, what is God up to in you and I's life? God is, as we know him, as we seek to know him and know the power of his resurrection in our lives and experience the fellowship of our sufferings, God is conforming, shaping, molding us to look like Christ. He uses his holy discipline, Hebrews chapter 12. And by discipline, we don't just mean punishment for wrongdoing. Discipline has two folds. It can correct wrongdoing, but it can also train the one who's walking right, rightly. And by the way, God disciplines who? Those whom he loves. This being conformed to the image of Christ, where God takes all things and uses his discipline to conform us into Christ, is because he loves us. And this idea of being conformed into his death is key Because Romans 6 says that at the moment you and I came to faith in Christ, you and I died with Christ. We were also arose with Christ. And it is this identification into Christ's death that gives you and I as followers of Christ complete and total control to say no to sin because sin has no more power over the one who's died to it. God is conforming us. God is working. God is molding. God is taking joys, sorrows. God is taking successes and trials. God is taking it all. And as we seek to know him, even if we seek not to know him, he is always actively at work in the life of his child, conforming us to the image 
of his son. And that confirmation is not fully complete until you get to the last part. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That conformity is not just a spiritual conformity, but you and I are promised in Christ. This body, unless the Lord returns and and there is, in fact, a rapture, and we won't go off on that debate today if there is or isn't. What's my position? We'll find out. <laughs> but this body will fail. That spiritual, non-physical part of me will go to be with the Lord. But when the Lord returns, and He is returning, He will raise my body back up. But it won't be a body like this body where my hips are off, part of my spine hurts, where it's decaying. No, it will be a body like that resurrection body of Christ. Perfect. The conformity is not just a spiritual conformity. It's completely and total conformity to make us in the image of Christ. And this certainty of the resurrection is such. Listen to how Paul paints this to the Corinthians. Speaking of the resurrection body, he says, now I say this, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. The perishable will put on the imperishable, the mortal must put on immortality. And it will be at this point that that it is written, saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain. Paul connects the certainty and reality and the hope of the, of the resurrection from the dead to remaining steadfast and faithful in the Lord. See, what does it mean to know him, church family? It means to know the very power of God in our life, the power that brought about the resurrection, and know that power in and moving through our life to experience it now. It means knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, the intimacy of walking with Christ, suffering on his behalf. It means being shaped and conformed and surrendered to that conformity by God to the image of Christ. And it means being focused on and driven by the end of the story where he returns and we are resurrected. But here's the sad reality, church family. For many of us, that what drives us, it's not knowing him. Doesn't mean we dislike him. Doesn't mean we don't read our Bibles. Doesn't mean we don't go to church. Doesn't mean we don't serve. Remember, the aim is not just obeying the rules. The aim is not changing the world. The aim is not having a great ministry. The aim is knowing him. And for many of us, we don't know him because it's not what we expected, and it's hard. You mean really knowing Christ means that I'm going to have to go through his suffering? Yes. You mean really knowing Christ means that I, I can't just stay the same in the way that I am? Yes. Because knowing Christ means God's going to conform us. It, sometimes we, we, we shrink back from knowing him because it's not what we pers- expected. Sometimes we shrink back because it takes time. Oh, we're going to look at this next week, church family. Not that I have already obtained, but I forget what lies behind and strain forward that lies ahead. Sometimes we shrink back because it takes time. Sometimes we shrink back from knowing him because a lot of times the way that God chooses to 
manifest his resurrection power in our life through weakness as we experience the fellowship of his sufferings and as he, using his loving discipline, conforms us, a lot of times we're in the dark. Which ultimately leads to this. This whole passage is built on knowing him. And you and I will never know him in this way if we do not abide in the righteousness of Christ. And here's the real kicker. For many of us, the reason the all driving pursuit and intention of our life is not knowing Christ is because there is absolutely no kind of personal gratification in knowing him. Is there delight? Is there joy that you and I experience personally? Oh, yes. But you and I don't know him because of our own status and achievements. We know him because he really is that good. We know him because he really did send his son. We know him because Jesus went on that cross and his body was broken and his blood was poured out. Because he took the, 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 the penalty, the payment, the punishment that you and I rightfully deserve. And he suffered on our behalf. And he rose victoriously. And at some point, if you were a child of God in this room, the Spirit began to touch your heart and mind, convicting us. And we needed to know him, that he is Lord. And we heard the gospel message that this is who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf. And we responded in repentance and faith. And God, who made him who knew no sin to be our sin, has made us righteousness in Christ Jesus. See, God delights to be known. The question is, do we really want to know him? Or do we get distracted and pulled away by the many wondrous and beautiful, good, bad, and ugly things around us? See, that story from Apollo 13, that Jim's statement came after he had his own daydream, imagining himself finally landing on the moon. He had spent more hours in space than any other human being at that point in history. The ultimate achievement right there, several miles below the ship, and he daydreamed being on the moon, and as he daydreamed, all of a sudden he looked up and he saw the earth. And as he saw the earth, he remembered not to be distracted, but he remembered the goal. The goal was to get home. Church family, the aim and the goal for you and I it's not changing the world. We can't change the world. Jesus changed the world. The aim for you and I is not achievement and status and this and that. No, the aim for you and I is knowing Christ. Amen. May it be. Father, Lord, as we come to our time of invitation this morning, I just know even in my own life this week, God, it is so easy and seductive to know about you, to check off boxes, to hunger and, and seek for, for influence, to, 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 be, to be used, God. And Lord, none of those things I've named, spending time in your word, being in prayer, being faithful to, to be with the body, to serve, to care, to desire, to impact, and to be, Lord, none of those things are horrible, awful things. But, Father, every one of those things can be twisted into a work of the flesh. 
Those are things that actually should be present in our lives, flowing out of you. But Lord, there should be one single-hearted, all-consuming, fiery desire to know you. So Father, may we be a people as a congregation, as an individuals who are driven to know you. And Father, if there are any in this room today, Lord, they can't ever seem to overcome that sin because there is no resurrection power in their life. They face suffering, but there is no fellowship. There is no comfort. There is no pouring out of the love of God in their life because, Lord, the reality is they don't actually know you. If there are any in this room who do not know you, Lord, what a day to meet you and know you now and forevermore. Holy Spirit, you move. Find us obedient to respond. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.